At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to our very first episode of 2018. This is Jack Rico, your host. And if this is the first time you're listening to our show, thank you for listening. It really means a lot to me that you've selected our show from the thousands of others that you could be spending your time listening to. We're starting the year off right with perhaps the most influential people in an animation with Coco director Lee Unkrich and producer Darla K. Anderson who are joining us straight from their fresh Golden Globe win. And, of course, it was the first Golden Globe Award for a Latino-themed animated film. How cool is that? We're going to discuss why it took so long for Pixar to make a Latino film. And if it's financial and award acclaim so far, we'll spawn off more multicultural animated films. And we're in the thick of award season, and who better to talk to about movie awards than Clayton Davis from AwardCircuit.com. He's arguably the most tapped-in film journalist in the business right now. He was just at the Critics' Choice Awards, and I'll ask him how these wins will start shaping the best picture of the year race at the Oscars. And I stopped by the Today Show with Hoda and Kathy Lee to give you a taste of 2018's best movie and TV shows to watch out for this year that are not Black Panther or Avengers Infinity War. There are other movies outside of those two that you guys should definitely tune into, and so stay tuned for that at the end of the podcast. Thank you to the Hollywood Foreign Press for this honor, um, and thanks to every last member of Coco's talented crew who gave their all during the six years that we spent making the film. Um, Thank you to the executive teams at Pixar and Disney for trusting us to tell this unique story and empowering us to tell it with the respect and the dignity that it deserved. Thank you to our loved ones who are no longer with us, who in ways great and small paved the way for us to be the people that we are today. We love you, we honor you, you inspire us. And finally, Coco would not exist without the incredible people of Mexico and their beautiful traditions of Dia de Muertos. Muchísimas gracias. One of the great stories of the 2017 film season was Pixar's love letter to Mexico in Coco. It has defied all expectations at the box office with universal acclaim from the Latino press, including a Golden Globe and Critics' Choice win so far. So now the question is, Will we see Pixar continue to do more Latino films in the future? To answer that question is Coco director and producer themselves, Lee Unkrich and producer Darla K. Anderson, who joined me right now in person. How important and what did this award mean? Because every time I interview somebody that just won an award, they say awards are always never important. 
But I think there's something about the amount of work, especially something like Coco that took six years to make, so much sweat and tears and such a huge team to probably do this, that at some point the recognition has to have some sort of value. For you, Darlin Lee, what did that mean for you personally? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they're like not important at all. Um, I don't think they're the best measure of the success of a film. I mean, with Coco, you know, we're, we're already so thrilled with how much the world has embraced the movie and how well it's done down in Mexico and how well it's doing in China and here in the U.S. everywhere. Um, so that's really the, the rewarding thing is seeing firsthand the effect that the movies had on people's mm-hmm, lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but the awards, I mean, they're nice. They're nice. They're nice mostly because um, – a lot of people worked on Coco for a really long time and they don't get to all be out with us, you know, as we open the movie around the world and directly see the impact that it's had on people. So I think it's really nice to see the the, the film industry uh, recognizing the work that they all did and uh, and celebrating it. Yeah. And I, I also um, under the, uh, topic of representation matters Mm -hmm. i i am just really proud of uh this film and uh and how we have an all latino cast and how it represents the the mexican and latino community Mm -hmm. and so for me the awards shine a light on the film in that way and so in that regard i'm i'm really happy for it to get um all the positive attention it can get. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, along the same lines, I think it's been, from what I've seen out on Twitter, I think the fact that we won the Golden Globe is a big deal for a lot of people in the Latino community. It's a huge, like I'm Colombian myself, by the way. Yeah, so they're really, yeah. they, they seem to be really proud that uh, a film that is so specifically about their culture is being, um, you know, recognized in that way. I wrote an article um, called The Latino Significance of Coco. And I think that one of the key things, and it's something that Oprah had opened up, and I'm sure you were there to see it. By the way, I also want to get your impressions of what you thought about that Oprah speech. Um, But she had said that when she was a little girl, she had seen Sidney Poitier win an award and what that meant for a black little girl at that time. I would put Coco in the same category. What this movie means for kids my skin color, brown skin color, that have never seen themselves really truly represented in that skin color on screen on the Pixar brand. And that has some significance. It means that we're included in the conversation of the highest echelons of the industry. Um, When you were coming up with doing Coco for the very first time, was that even a, a part of your brain mechanics, uh, the process of how this would affect children and how they would see themselves and maybe how that would lead to maybe more confidence building as they grew up? I mean, we certainly thought about it. Yeah. And we did talk about it. Um, I'm not Latino myself, obviously, but um, and nor is Darla. <laughs> but we did have a lot of uh, Latino folks on our crew, including Adrian Molina, who I know you spoke yeah. to, my co-director and screenwriter. Um, so, uh, we, we did hear it from him definitely. And, and any of n- number of people, I remember when mm-hmm. Benjamin Bratt came in for the first time when we were pitching him, he the was idea. great by the way, as Ernesto, he is great. Um, he, we brought him into our art room and he just saw all the concept, concept art and pre-production art 
of all the different characters that were going to be in the mm-hmm. movie. And he just paused for a moment and had tears in his eyes and, wow. and said as much. He's like, you got, he said something to the effect of, I don't think you guys know the impact that this movie is going to have and how important it's going to be for kids to look up and see people like themselves up on screen. Right. So that begs the question, why, Lee and Darla, did it take so long for Pixar to create a multicultural film? Every movie that we've made at Pixar has been because the director had an idea that they became passionate about and had a story that they wanted to tell. Um, We've never had any agenda. There's no big wall at Pixar where we kind of tick off making different types of movies. Um, This film exists in the world purely because I had a strong interest in Dia de Muertos the Day of the Dead, and... You ha- had you gone to Mexico? Did somebody mention it? How did it come into the sphere of your mind? Well, I, I think I was always aware of it in the way that I think everyone is kind of knows of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived down in Los Angeles for a number of years when I went to USC, uh, obviously a big Latino community there, um, and I spent a lot of time kind of in the underground art world, and so right. I would see a lot of folk art and a lot of kind of the iconography of the celebration, but I never really understood it. Um, and it wasn't really until we, you know, I, I had the first early thoughts to tell a story set against Dia de Muertos that I started to do a deep dive along with my collaborators uh, to learn more about the celebration. And it, it wasn't until we really started talking to people and reading and learning what the celebration was all about that I started to really see the potential for making a good movie. One of the things that a lot of people had said, Darla in particular, was... Uh, so many myths were basically said that Latino movies, Latino stories just don't sell. It's just not not it's not inclusive for everybody. And Latino movies are basically made for Latino uh, viewers. And I feel like when Hamilton came out and Lin-Manuel Miranda did In the Heights as well, and he won the Tony for that, that was a Latino story. So what we were starting to see were the seeds of that. You know what? Also, multicultural stories also have depth, also have interest. And... When Coco came out, was there any concern that it would not include everybody else? How did you? How were you able to universalize it? That way, it wasn't a movie necessarily for Mexicans, but it was a movie for everybody. You know, it's interesting at, at Pixar, um, we really do focus on the vision of the film and and of the director and and ourselves and making a movie that we want to see. So we're not. Um, and all of our films are, you know, the elevator pitches would be weird. Any of our films are a little, you know, different. And so in that way, we, when we decided to make the film set in Mexico, like uh, we, many of our films, we just really wanted to be true to the, the cultural celebration and uh, true to this holiday that we're in love with. And then you just hope that what we're in love with and what we want to see does become universal that or that we have a lot in common um and that that's always the hope and the prayers we're making our films and in in the case of coco you know we we realized pretty or we learned pretty early on how important family was uh to the celebration and to mexican culture and and to uh, remembrance as well exactly and so i mean that that is that's a universal idea i mean we all have family we all struggle with family at times um, we all think about 
how we would want to be remembered. I mean, these are all, I think, very uh, universal ideas, and that's proven out by the fact that the film's done well around the world. But we absolutely did have conversations. I mean, there were some uh, concerns early on that we were maybe doing something that was too culturally specific. And, right. you know, we understand that, you know, obviously uh, there's a lot in, in the movie for the Latino audience and for the Mexican audience, but what's in it for people from Russia or right. from Korea, you know? Um, uh, so there was worry about that um, early on, but the more people saw the story that we were telling and uh, and learned about what Dia de Muertos is all about, because there there is a lot of uh, maybe ignorance is too strong a word to use, but um, just mis- people are misinformed about what Dia de Muertos is about. They a lot of people just think it's the Mexican Halloween, and right, <laughs> which and it's understandable, right? right because you have right. the skeleton imagery, and it takes place, you know, literally starts the day after Halloween. Um, but as we all know, and hopefully have educated people with the film, it, the, the the celebration actually has nothing to do with Halloween whatsoever. Um, and we found that many cultures around the world have their own celebrations that aren't the same as Dia de Muertos, but they are, they're along the same lines and they have to do with ancestor, um, uh, honoring. And, uh, so we, we actually ended up being very surprised that, um, audiences connected to it, not only on the family aspects, but on the specifics of the importance of remembering ancestors. What are the box office numbers so far? Because I know you guys are very pleased. I think we're closing in on 600 million worldwide now. That's incredible. Which is very exciting. We haven't opened yeah, we still haven't opened in the United Kingdom. And we haven't so there's still a, ju- a lot of more major markets to open up. In. Yeah, I wouldn't say a lot at this point, but um, England, Ireland, uh, Japan hasn't happened yet. Have you exceeded the expectations of what the movie profit-wise and business-wise uh, was, was initially set at? Um, you know, I, I, perhaps. I mean, I think that... You know, we're you know, Lee and I are always conservative, and we're going off for any movie, um, right. and so, um, but mostly we're just pleased at how well it's done. And in order to make these kind of numbers, uh, you have to make a film that people go see more than once. And in this right. case, on this film, what we've heard is so many people are going with their families multiple times. Well, I saw it in Spanish. And seen it in Spanish. There was yeah. movie theaters, and I actually thought, well, for me in particular, because I understand Spanish. Uh, that was such a brilliant idea, which every one of you two came up with it. It was so brilliant because it allowed me to almost hear it natively. Mm-hmm. Like if they're a Mexican family, then they should speak Spanish. Right. Where would be the Spanish version of this movie? Right. And so there was a list of movie theaters that had done that. And there was a great letter. I'm not sure, Lee, maybe it was yeah, on I Twitter. Posted that, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit sure. about that? That was one of the great stories that I yeah. had heard. Well, to give you a little backstory quick, we, quickly, um, you know, we always wanted to incorporate as much Spanish into the even the English language version as possible because we knew that the movie took place in Mexico. So if you watch the film, every last bit of signage, any words painted on the sides of buildings, anywhere, it's all Spanish. Uh, the only time we used English is if there was some story point we were trying to express. And so those would get translated into different languages. We also tried to incorporate Spanish into the even the English yes. dialogue a yep. lot. There was um, a Spanglish sort of feel yeah, to it, yeah, just in an effort to, we didn't want it to feel like people were speaking both languages necessarily, but we tried to just seamlessly work in some Spanish, always in cases either where there are words that are pretty common that people know, or if the context was enough even if you didn't know what the words meant exactly, mm-hmm. you kind of get that, like, say, Miguel's abuelita is smothering him with hugs and kisses. 
you don't have to understand everything she's saying. You get that she's, you know, smothering him with love. Right. Um, so as we started approaching our release, we started talking about um, the film getting released in Spanish. I had seen a lot of people on Twitter reaching out to me saying, I hope this will be available in Spanish. Um, and so we started the conversation with Disney. And interestingly, the, the Spanish uh, language versions of films have traditionally not done that well. Um, Disney has released films uh, in Spanish in the past in America, but it's been a very tiny part of their audience. And so they initially... Um, Is that maybe because the stories themselves didn't lend themselves for a, I, I, a pure, authentic... Uh, I, don't, I don't know, honestly, why, but that's, that's just what kind of the demographics were. Um, and so there initially wasn't a plan to do a big Spanish release, but it, it, given our subject matter, mm-hmm. um, we just felt like it was important. And so we kept the conversation going and talked a lot about it. And uh, ultimately, a decision was made to do kind of a broader Spanish release. And additionally, we partnered with this company called Theater Ears. I don't know if you know about this. No, but no. It's very cool because there are a lot of mixed families where, you know, the grandparents only speak Spanish, but the, maybe right. the kids don't speak much Spanish. Right. And with Theater Ears, uh, it's an app on your iPhone and Android. People uh, can kind of enter the, the showtime that they're going to and download the Spanish language That's track. That's very cool. And then when they get to the theater, they put on their earbuds, hit play, and the app automatically it listens syncs. to the movie and it syncs it so we can have families experiencing it in different languages at the same time, which is very cool. And I had a lot of people write to me on Twitter um, saying that they really loved that because they were able to go with their whole extended family. One key thing, were all the Spanish language actors that you had used for English were they available to do the Spanish version? Because I, I I couldn't necessarily tell while I was watching it. it like was Gal a, it Garcia was a, Bernal. And yeah, it was Hannah a Camille. mix. Some of them, um, Gael plays Hector in both mm-hmm. versions of okay. the movie. And uh, there are a handful, small handful of actors that are in both versions. But you had to probably hire other actors. Yeah, right? mostly when we do the translations in other countries, mm-hmm. um, they tend to want to cast a lot of um, local big stars. To help with the marketing of the Right, film. okay, that makes and sense. And so that was the case in Mexico as well. There were a lot of great stars and people that we actually considered ourselves for the English language version, hmm. but in some cases they didn't really speak English, mm. and so that wasn't going to work. Um, so it was nice to see them show up in the Spanish language version of the film. Um, and then Darla, you know, a lot of people have been talking about how successful this has been, that there's Oscar talk that this movie could go all the way to the Oscars and win it. What would happen if this film wins the Oscar? What does that say for multicultural stories moving forward? Do you both think that this is a one-off, never to be done again? It was a great experiment. We won an Oscar. We won a Golden Globe. But um, we were expecting $2 billion out of it, so we're not doing any more. Or, wow, this just set a chain reaction to explore more multicultural stories. For example, Argentina has an incredible rich culture. Peru and Machu Picchu has another incredible rich tradition. Um, Can you guys confirm or have there been any conversations to create more multicultural stories in an animated form? I'm not saying immediately, but in the future. Um, You know, I certainly uh, hope so. I hope that uh, across, not just at Pixar Disney, but across all companies, this Mm -hmm. sparks a a whole inspiration uh, to to show how getting uh, all kinds of multicultural and women and whatever unique voice you might have uh, can be successful. 
um, if it's got a universal uh, appeal and can connect with everybody the way that Coco did. Mm -hmm. um, at our companies, we certainly have a lot of extraordinarily interesting things going on um, that we can't really talk about, but mm -hmm. um, I would say that, that Coco uh, just continues to confirm uh, to, for me that uh, I'm just so happy <laughs> that it did, and it gives me faith. Um, that when you make a film like this, people will come and see it. And I'm just couldn't be more grateful. And again, without getting into any specifics, um, suffice to say that we do have a number of directors of uh, uh, di very diverse backgrounds. And um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised to start seeing uh, kind of more interesting projects along those lines. Because that the, I mean, promising. This Coco, <laughs> I, I will say Coco is a, uh, has been, I think, a bigger hit than any of us imagined. So it's not in any way seen as a disappointment. Um, we, I, when we were making it, honestly, we just hope it, hope that it would turn a profit because uh, there were right. just so many question marks. The biggest one for me being, would the Latino audience accept it? Would Mexico accept it? On Twitter, you were asking questions at one point. You wanted the fan reaction. Uh, and I believe people were pretty honest. Here's what we want. Did that serve as a form of focus group for you? I don't remember that specifically, but... Um we, you know, I mean, we had our own internal focus groups and, you know, we do do test screenings of the films. And, and on this film, we had a lot of cultural consultants that we brought on mm -hmm. who were kind of test groups in a way. There were some people that really were just with us for one day who would come in, experts in different fields, different members of the Latino arts community, politics, media, who would watch the film in progress and kind of give us their thoughts about what they thought was working, what they thought could be better. So what was the biggest sort of uh, comment that you felt like it was very useful? Um, there were uh, there were always very specific comments about what it was like to grow up in a Latino household uh, mm. that we would incorporate, like the whole idea of la chancla coming into the <laughs> film came out of that. Were you familiar with la chancla? No, before? <laughs> I wasn't. We originally we had Abuelita carrying a wooden spoon around with her. No and way. And she would pull it out and whack people with it, and it came, and it was one of our couple of our cultural consultants who suggested that we change it to her chunk. So it was originally a wood, a wooden stick. Yeah, it was a, like a spoon. Yeah, like a wooden spoon. That's hilarious. So those kinds of things change. Um, we were always getting um, pushback from the consultants to incorporate more and more Spanish. Like they, there was never enough Spanish, which right. was cool. That was fine. Um, and uh, a lot of the notes had to do with music. You know, when you were making a movie, you have to use temporary music for the soundtrack mm -hmm. and songs and everything. And we would always remind everyone that it was just temporary and that we'd actually be writing a score. But people had very strong feelings about the music and making sure that the music was authentic and that we really celebrated the rich diversity of music that there is in Mexico. Uh, Remember Me. What was it about that song in particular that, that resonated with you in specific? Well, that was something that actually came to us very early on. Um, once we had settled on the basic story that we have, you know, being a boy who wants to be a musician, who is stuck in a family that hates music, mm -hmm. um, we started working with Bobby Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez. Mm -hmm. From Frozen. Who wrote right? all the songs for Frozen. And I, I've been friends with them for years. Bobby created Avenue Q and the Book of Mormon on Broadway. Um, I'd always wanted to work with them, so we brought them in and were kicking around some different ideas. And early on, we came up with this notion of there being a song that we would hear in the film 
that would take on different meanings depending on how it was sung. Mm-hmm. That there would be like a secret to it and it would kind of, you would learn different things about the song as the movie went on. We didn't know what the name of the song was or what it was or anything. We just, it was just that, that concept. Mm-hmm. And Bobby and Kristen went off and uh, what they came back with was a song called Remember Me. And it was the song that is in the movie. Um, a lot of things change in the many years it takes to make a movie, right. but that was something that remained a constant. It was all it was part of the bedrock from the very beginning. Was Lin Manuel Miranda ever considered to write any of the songs for Coco? Since he had been working on Moana and is I no, believe is I part think of he the was, Disney family. He was actually deep in working on Moana at the time mm, that we okay. were making this, so um, no. So Bobby and Kristen ended up writing that one song, and uh, and then the rest of the songs that you hear in the movie were a partnership between Adrian Molina, mm-hmm. uh, my co-director, and um, Jermaine Franco, who uh, is a woman who helped us out with a lot of the orchestration on the movie and uh, arranging. And so she wrote the music on all the other songs in the film, and, and Adrian wrote the lyrics. And then you have the Oscars. What is your particular expectation? Is this something that you're, 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 uh, what, what, how are you feeling spirit wise with the film and the great competition of all the other films that are out there, like The Breadwinner, et cetera? I mean, honestly, we, you know, are just, uh, humbled to even consider being nominated and that's quite sincerely you never know what's going to happen there's so many amazing films out there that uh, don't get recognized and so um, we hope we continue to hope that we and for me again uh, I, I just really continue to want to shine the spotlight on the community and I just really hope for the the, the entire community and team of those surrounding uh, Coco that um, it'll continue to get um, spotlight shone on it. And to conclude, Lee, uh, you never t- finished telling me the story of the letter that you received. Oh, right. Yes. That was so touching. Right. So, yeah, I got a, I got a, it was actually sent to the studio, kind of not anom- anonymously, but it was just sent to a general mailbox at the studio. How did you end up getting it? It was forwarded to me by the, the, the folks who kind of get the mail at the general email box. Like, it, it was like I threw a web form, I think, at the Pixar website. And this woman wrote to me um, very emotionally uh, talking about the impact that Coco had on herself and her family, and specifically that um, she was able to take her mom, who uh, I think only spoke Spanish, to see Coco, and uh, that she was able to share that with her mother, who you know hadn't come to see a movie in the United States at all because she felt left out, and. Um, it was just, it was very sweet. And I, I got, a, I, I've received many, I would say hundreds and hundreds of tweets like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just people kind of more succinctly saying the same kind of thing, talked about the impact that it's had on their families and themselves. And uh, I shared that letter just because she just so eloquently wrote at length about the impact that it had had on her. And I, I just wanted to pass that along to everybody else. Well, once again, congratulations on what you've done on the social impact, I feel, that you've left also on America in the movie industry, in the animation industry, in the culture of Latin Americans and just multiculturals overall. I think that this is a groundbreaking film, and uh, I hope there's more to come. So congratulations on all your success. Thank you so much. Thanks. It was great talking to you. This isn't a dream, then. You're all really out there. It's time for Jacked In. 
Let's begin with the top movie news of the week. Huge night for Latinos at the Critic Choice Movie Awards. Guillermo del Toro, His Shape of Water, and Pixar's Coco win Best Director, Best Picture, and Best Animated Film, respectively. According to the LA Times, James Franco was accused of sexual misconduct by five women. Mark Wahlberg got $1.5 million for all the money reshoot, while Michelle Williams was paid less than $1,000. Fandango reports that Black Panther is the best-selling Marvel film in its first 24 hours of sales, and movies coming out this weekend are Paddington 2, Taraji B. Henson's Proud Mary, Liam Neeson's The Commuter, and Steven Spielberg's Post goes wide. In TV news, Selena-inspired Latino family drama is coming to ABC. Today's show has been the number one morning show for six straight weeks. Jennifer Lopez is returning to Will & Grace as a guest star. Black Mirror's popular cult episode, USS Callister, could have a potential spinoff. Univision's Black Mirror version, Descontrol, premieres this Sunday night at 9 p.m. starring Shalim Ortiz. NBC has renewed Ellen DeGeneres' Games of Games for season two. HBO has signed Ronan Farrow to a three-year deal. And CBS This Morning names John Dickerson as Charlie Rose's replacement. Switching over to music, Justin Timberlake reveals Man of the Woods is the name of his new album coming out February 2nd and will be Jimmy Fallon's first guest right after his Super Bowl performance. Cardi B, Bruno Mars, Kesha, Childish Gambino, Lady Gaga, and Pink are among the names that will perform at the Grammys in New York City on January 28th. Eminem, Kendrick Lamar, Arctic Monkeys, and The Killers to headline 2018's Firefly Music Festival, and Camila Cabello's debut album, Camila, is out now. And in digital and social media news, Facebook is set to unveil a $500 video chat system to rival Amazon's Echo this year. Hulu plans on expanding to international soil, Fox is previewing Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs in virtual reality, and get ready for your credit cards to become smart credit cards, which will have a cell phone antenna inside. And the critic's choice is Guillermo del Toro. The movie award season is in full swing and 2017 did not offer us a clear winner of what the best film of the year was. Is it three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri? What about Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water? Many really like Lady Bird. To get us closer to what the Oscars might pick, Clayton Davis from awardcircuit.com jumps on the phone with me directly from Los Angeles. Clayton Davis, how are you, my man? Hey, how you doing today? Tell me a little bit about for for the for the listeners that have not probably visited awardcircuit.com yet. What is the premise of the website and what are you guys covering at the moment? We're we're going on 10 years old, so we're getting into the crazy teenage year soon. Uh, <laughs> but you know, yeah, but we but we follow uh, the award season all year round. So we follow the Oscars the day after the last Oscars uh, finish. So right now, obviously, we're in the thick of award season. And, you know, we're just following the race, checking what the precursors are saying, what the major guilds and groups are saying. And I'm talking to Oscar voters on a near daily daily basis, listening to what they're watching, what they're liking, what they're hating, what they're hearing around the beat. Um, but, yeah, Award Circuit just covers it all. And, you know, we just welcome readers from all around the world who just love movies and just want to talk about them. And this is your, your own website. This is your own company, right? Yeah, it's my baby. Yep. How, so how did you come up with this idea? Uh, you know, I, I, at first, you know, we started off as, you know, a bunch of guys that just liked movies and, you know, it was just a hobby on the side. And then, you know, then we just started getting some more notoriety and then people just started, uh, you know, like listening to us more, uh, publicists started reaching out. And the big, uh, turn was back in 2006, uh, Emilio Estevez, uh, he directed the movie Bobby, which I love. Yes. Um, and I, I had gotten into a test screening of the film, and I was nobody at the time. But uh, I did a review of the test screening. I said, listen, it's a four-star movie. 
probably the best film of the year. Everyone's great in it, especially his father, Martin Sheen. Well, uh, somehow, Emilio Estevez got word of that, wrote me an email, and then said, hey, just want to say, because of your review, Harvey Weinstein uh, gave approval to not cut my father out of the movie. Holy okay, so there's the power yeah. of media, power of the pen, power of the keyboard. It was the first it was the first time I saw that this could be something and that like I had an opportunity to reach some people. And there's been a, about, you know, two dozen stories more after that, but that was the first time that it uh kicked off. Well, congratulations on your success with the website, man. Um so now let's talk about award season. It's your bread and butter. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri was the big winner of the Golden Globes. And now Guillermo del Toro's Shape of Water was the big winner of the Critics' Choice Awards. So how's the race shaping up for the Oscar nominations on January 23rd? What do you think are the top five films that are really in contention right now? Shape of Water, Lady Bird. Uh, I, Tanya? Three billboards. Three God, I, w- I wish, but no. Um, I, I'm going to say Dunkirk, I think. Shit, man. And I, I, th- I hate and I, that movie. And even though I don't buy it, enough of the industry is talking about it, Get Out. You know, Get Out is actually a great movie. The fact that <laughs> it has comedic tones, right, much like Lady yeah. Bird and I, Tanya, that's yeah. the sort of the, 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 the common, the, the recurring thread throughout films this year. That three billboards, comedic tone. Uh, Lady Bird, I, Tanya, Get Out. All four of those films, even to the, a certain year, extent, Shape of Water, they all have yeah. comedic undertones that yeah. I think that at some point might be leading into the conversation of, can we start nominating comedies for these major award shows? I mean, they are well, movies. Well, the dramedy thing has always been a thing, right? Like Sideways and things like that in the past mm-hmm. have gotten in with no problem. But hardcore comedies have a really, really tough time. The Hangover couldn't do it, despite winning Best Picture at the Golden Globes a few years back, right? Bridesmaids couldn't do it. Those are conventional comedies. But listen, I, I am I am the king of stats. I believe in them. I can usually spew them out, Oscar stats. To, <laughs> You're like to, Joe to, Girardi. To you, oh, my God, yeah. I, I, I like to call myself the, uh, the, the Mike... Um, Matt Pinfield. Yeah, that's him. Matt yes. Pinfield. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm him in the Oscar world. So here, let me throw out some stats stats for you uh three billboards ladybird uh on their face are the if you go by stats are the only ones that look like they could win best picture mm-hmm. because they have a sag ensemble nomination they were nominated at the golden globes uh they got writers guild nominations pga nominations and so forth that continues they have a lot of stuff in their favor shape of water it did not get a SAG Ensemble nomination. Since the since 1995, which was the first year that the Screen Actors Guild held their awards, um, every film that's been nominated for SAG Ensemble has gone on to win the Oscar, with the exception of Braveheart, which was the very right. first year they had the award. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So last year, La La Land didn't get a SAG Ensemble nomination, and we like wrote it off, like, oh no, it's going to break that stat, and it didn't. Right. So, so a SAG ensemble, what that should tell your re- your listeners right now, is SAG ensemble is indicative of the support in the actors branch, which is the largest branch of the academy. They're the ones that give you best picture winners. They tell you if they like your film or not. Shape of Water pulled two nominations. 
on the day for Sally Hawkins and Richard Jenkins. Doesn't mean that it's out of the running, but the fact that it didn't get that widespread support that that we see in a Best Picture frontrunner shows that maybe it's not beloved and it may be a little divisive. But I'd say a lot of a lot of the movies this year are Dunkirk. That's its problem. It's a it polarizing got, it, film. Because of the yeah. timeline flashes that no one seems to pick up quickly. And then it's in the yeah. second viewing that you go, oh, I see how yeah. that kind of overlapped into this. But it's too yeah. artsy-fartsy for a World War II film. This is the thing with Dunkirk. And we've been here with Christopher Nolan before. All the fanboys get really souped up during the summertime. Because usually he gives like one of the better movies of the summer, which was the case again this year for some. Obviously, you're not in that, in that boat. But, you know, we get excited. Dark Knight. Inception, Interstellar, all that stuff happens, and we're like, he's going to get a Best Director nomination, this is his year, and he still is without a Best Director nomination. Incredible. I still think that could be the case this year. And my last so, question, Clayton, yeah. um, is why isn't there a clear front runner in 2018 in films? Um, so, two reasons. One, I think it's, it's people getting shy about calling a front runner a front runner. Because of the La La Land Moonlight situation. Because I think people, people, I mean, we have a race. I think we officially have a race, which is good. I think it's between three, three billboards, Lady Bird, Shape of Water, and maybe Get Out. Get Out's going to have its own history to overcome. It will be the first horror movie since Silence of the Lambs to win Best Picture. Uh, before that, you have to go back to Rebecca, if you believe, you know, depending on how you define the genre. But you have to go back to Rebecca in 1940. So it's going to be rough for that. Um, and you have to probably also, take into it, before you go to number two, you also have to take into yeah. account diversity and how much that means because we're coming off of a year where more than ever, I mean, yes, Moonlight did win, but that can't be a fluke. That can't be a one-off where that happened. They might say, how often is Jordan Peele going to get a horror comedy uh, into the Oscars. This is the year yeah. you have to nominate Guillermo, Jordan Peele, Ava DuVernay for, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird. Uh, you could have an inclusive director, directorial nominated uh, ensemble there that could start sending waves. Do you feel yeah. that, that diversity or inclusiveness will play a role in the nominations this year at the Oscars? So... That usually plays a role in the industry talk. So you and I are talking about it right now. That part matters. When it comes to the Academy, and I've always believed this, they don't like to be backed into a corner. They don't like being forced to do something that they feel like they're supposed to do. So if they don't if they don't want to do it, they won't. Mm. If you go if you go to wordcircuit.com right now and look at my best director prediction, it is prob I, I I I know that it's wrong. Because I know it's such a dream prediction. It includes Guillermo del Toro, a Mexican, Greta Gerwig, a woman, Dee Reese, a black woman for Mudbound, Jordan Peele, a black man for Get Out, and Martin McDonough, three billboards. There's one (laughs) white guy in that lineup. (laughs) Oh my God, that is a death. That's a dream, dream sort of nominated list. But what's funny is it is kind of possible. It can totally happen. Right. If, if 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 they're willing to do that now, the directors' branch is three hundred guys, and they're they're a boys' club typically, so they like what they like. Women don't have a good track record at the academy. There's only four women that have ever been nominated. One person won, Catherine Bigelow of the Hurt Locker, and even her second bout with Zero Dark Thirty, she didn't get nominated. Ava DuVernay didn't get nominated for Selma. This is all like leading to something that hopefully 
We're going to, I think, Natalie Portman's message of the Golden Globes here with the all male nominees <laughs> might have hit, hit a button with some. Right. I think that may have uh, most of all helped out Greta Gerwig. But I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to watch how this un- unfolds. Ballots are due on Friday. So the Critics' Choice has the opportunity to make an impression and show them what they should be doing. Clayton Davis from AwardCircuit.com. Thanks for coming on, man. And uh, enjoy James Corden. No, thank you. And before we wrap up, I was on the Today Show with Hoda and Kathleen to give the best movies and TV shows of 2018 that aren't Marvel movies. Have a listen. 2018 is already shaping up to be a really big year in the world of entertainment. And here with a preview is the editor-in-chief of showbizcafe.com, <laughs> Jack Rico. Happy New Year's, ladies. And to you. Oprah. And to you. Oprah. Yes. Oprah. That's right. Yeah. So this is Ava DuVernay's brand new fantasy film, and it has an incredible diverse cast. We're mm-hmm. talking about Oprah Winfrey, Gugumbatha Raw, Mindy Kaling, Michael Pena, Reese Witherspoon is also in this, along with Chris Pine. And it's based on the 1962 book, uh, where a young girl and her brother meet these mystical figures, as you see on screen, mm-hmm. uh, where they try and help their father, who's trapped um, against mm-hmm. this universal evil. One of the key things about this is, as you see the trailer, there's a lot of underlying messages of female empowerment, so this should be a lot of fun to say. Cool. Timing is everything. Lady mm-hmm. Gaga, we've been hearing about A Star is Born, Star is born so it's, it's now Cooper. happening. Absolutely, so this is a fresh take on the classic, tragic love story. It stars wow. uh, Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper, and there's a couple of firsts here. Bradley Cooper's doing his directorial debut, and Lady Gaga's, this is her first leading role in a major motion oh. picture. Looks like Disney's doing these prequel spin-off series that they've been planning for the Star Wars franchise for quite some time. Uh, Ron Howard directs, and Alden Aaron Reich is now going to be playing the young Han Solo. And this takes place 10 years before Star Wars New Hope. And so uh, um, Donald Glover is going to be playing Lando Carlesian along with Amelia Clark and Woody Harrelson. And, uh, you know, I think the big question to ask is, can Alden Ehrenreich fill in the shoes of Harrison mm-hmm. Ford? Cool. And we're about to find out this year. All right. We've been hearing a lot of buzz about Ocean's 8, the all-female <laughs> right. group. Oda now understands it, so it's really good. I don't know how you ladies aren't in this film. Uh, exactly. Uh, nobody thinks of us for anything. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, they've called some of the biggest female names in Hollywood, and they've come together to create this female sequel of the Ocean's 11 series. Incredible cast. Sandra Bullock, Kate Blanchett, and Hathaway, Rihanna, just to name a few, and it's about eight con women that try to rob the Met Gala. So there's going to be a lot That's of cameos. James, Cor- James Corden in this, Kim Kardashian is set to be in here, Matt Damon is going to be making a quick cameo, but nobody oh. knows if George cool. Clooney is going to be making one, but uh, I think this is the future franchise. with he Because that was his, his baby, he and Brad yeah. Pitt, right? Uh, yeah. I, n- not sure, not sure, yeah. but that's a good question, and will George make an appearance? Yeah, cool. Alright, so in- The Incredibles too. If, if you want to take your kid to something, it's a good one, right? Yeah, this is a highly anticipated sequel yeah. oh. from Pixar oh. 2004. Oh, it's Haley you know. Joy. Oh, she's so cute. It's great, because this is the superhero era, so this is going to, you know, fitting uh, great. Samuel L. Jackson, Craig T. Nelson, and Holly Hunter are going to be making, are going to be returning to lend their voices, and it just picks up where it left off with the emergence of the superpowers of Baby Jack. And uh, <laughs> finally, you've got a major summer blockbuster, Jurassic World, The Fallen Kingdom. That's right. This is a movie from sister company uh-huh. uh, Universal Pictures. Chris Pratt, Bryce L. Howard, they return to the island that they left off the dinosaurs because they're about to be extinct from the eruption of a volcano. Right. One thing to note is that the director creates these arresting visuals and tells highly emotional wow. stories. So I think that this film is in uh, good hands. 
All right, let's quickly uh, tick through some TV. We've got the assassination of Gianni Versace. That's, yeah, that's, that's a big one. That's right. So that's Ryan Murphy's thing. This right? is mm-hmm. a second season of the American Crime Story mm-hmm. that they're doing. Ryan Murphy has decided that he was going to cast some of the biggest Latino names for this mm-hmm. uh, particular show. Edgar Ramirez, Ricky Martin, and mm-hmm. Penelope Cruz are going to be this, along with Darren Chris. And it's, you know, the, the, oh, wow. the reenactment, basically, of the assassination of Gianni Versace in the front steps of his home. And, and actually filmed there as and well. And actually yeah. filmed it there. So one of the things he wants to do with the show is to tackle the homophobia of the 1990s, much the way he did racism with the OJ story mm-hmm. a few years back. Um, season, season, the new season of The Voice happens to have our favorite Kelly Clarkson. That's in right. It. Yes. Oh, that's oh. right. We have a secret we can't we discuss. We have a secret we can't reveal. Oh, that's right. right. Don't do this. We can't no. reveal it. Well, Kelly Clarkson yeah. returns along with Adam Blake and uh, Alicia Keys. This has been a long time coming. They've been trying to, the voice has been trying to get a Kelly Clarkson for a while. And a lot of people are asking, why didn't she go to the American Idol reboot? And it's simple. The voice was negotiating with her way before the American Idol did. So that's why she's going to be with us. She's going to be such a great addition. Wherever Kelly goes, we love it. All right, Jackie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Year, sweetie. Okay. That's it for 2018's first episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank Lee Unkrich, Darla K. Anderson, and Clayton Davis for stopping by. And thank you guys for listening from your favorite streaming platform, wherever you may be. I'd love to hear from you guys. Send me your questions or feedback to the highly relevant at showbizcafe.com. That's highly relevant at showbizcafe.com. Also, if you like this US Latino podcast, please share it on your social media apps. Tell your friends all about it. And if you can, have them subscribe to the show. Hope you enjoy your weekend and stay connected with us via showbizcafe.com. Enjoy your weekend and see you next week on another episode of At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.